When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Cersei Lannister to Eddard Stark, who not long after that had his head lopped off and mounted on a spike. Welcome to our podcast, Bloody Violent History. Jamie and I have a corker for you today, bloody and violent. But before we jump in, please remember to pass on this episode to a friend. Do it now. Just hit the share button and post it. Right, back to the show. Many of you will recognise the opening quote from the fictional series A Song of Ice and Fire by George R. R. Martin. It may be fiction, but it doesn't mean it isn't true. What Cersei said. Before democracy, sovereigns ruled, often with absolute power, over their court, their military, their subjects. To be king, queen, pharaoh, tsar or emperor, a person had to gain power over their people, a person had to hold power over their people, and lastly, that person had to pass on that power to their successor of choice. War should be the only study of a prince. He should consider peace only as the breathing time, which gives him leisure to contrive and furnishes as ability to execute military plans. Yes, Machiavelli, despite being tortured by a prince, was still clear-headed enough to understand what a prince, a king, had to do to stay on top. In peacetime, a king can maintain his power with spectacles, tournaments and a royal progression across his realm. Bread and circuses. But when a challenge looms, war is not far behind and the ruler must don his armour and lead his men to victory or death. Even as young democracies emerged, the king, with his conviction upheld by divine right, would only reluctantly surrender the levers of power when a sharp blade was held to his throat. Jamie, set the scene. Before we dive into the detail, how can a monarch gain, hold and pass on absolute power? Well, it tends to be through marriage or murder or through war. Those are really the three approaches. And if you are talking about absolute monarchy, then there's no democratic means of succession. So that monarch has to hold power. And you know, when it comes to murder, you only have to look to such kings as King John, who apparently strangled or beat his nephew Arthur to death in Rouen Castle back in 1203. So that's just one murder. I thought that was the exclusive preserve of the early Russian Tsars, beating uh, well, their son, sons to death. Well, it tends to go on in many courts. You look at the Ottoman Empire and every sultan tended to murder the offspring of the other wives, the other women in the harem, because, again, that was the only way to stop rivals. So, Children it, don't know how lucky they are today. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and apart from King John, of course, the, the famous example is the princes in the tower when Richard, Duke of Gloucester, later Richard III, uh, supposedly uh, had them murdered. I have no doubt he did, that crookback Dick uh, went and did them in, did Richard and Edward in, the sons of Edward IV. And and he was the uncle of those boys. So it, it was just trying to guard your own succession, to guard your own line. And, and this is why 
you know, with, with all the different dukedoms, with all the royal families, with all the rivalries and the marriages, offing the opposition, getting rid of them was extremely important. You had to preserve your lineage, had to preserve your line. And then, of course, that can lead to you preserving the wrong kind of, of successor rather than the best on merit within that small pool. You get rid of everybody and end up with your grotty little son who's uh, <laughs> yes, you never who's quite, no good. You never quite know where it's going to go. But it's, it's worth remembering that when George II inherited the throne from his father in 1727, from George I, he was the first adult male heir, the first in line, the eldest son, to have inherited the throne without any sort of problems since Henry V in 1413. And, it, and I, actually, on that point, I shouldn't uh, malign all sons of, of monarchs, but, of course, Henry V was a remarkable child to his father, son to his father, and prince in, in war. He was wounded at the Battle of Shrewsbury, age 16, with an arrow in his eye, no, almost in his eye, in his left cheek. And Edward the Black Prince, son of Edward III, fought at the Battle of Cressy. So uh, both those boys, it was seen as a blooding, a bit like riding to hounds. That, yeah, and I mean, Edward was told in the battle, wasn't he, that his um, son, the Black Prince, was under pressure. And he essentially said, well, it'll, it'll be good for him to but, fight his way out. Exactly. If they made it out with, with, with both arms and both legs intact, then, then you're, you're laughing. And Prince Henry, uh, the Battle of Shrewsbury, when he was wounded, he had lifted his visor and got hit by the arrow. That's what did for Henry Percy or Harry Hotspur, the Duke of Northumberland, at that battle. He had lifted a visor and he was killed by an arrow. So uh, the, these were dangerous times to be a prince or a king. So remember where you crash on it. Indeed. And, and we talked about rivals and dukedoms. I mean, you, every king had problems with barons. Every king had problems with royal dukes, not only with members of their families, but with members of the nobility. But and the distinction, Jamie, between the, the barons, the earls and the dukes, I think is an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, when William the Conqueror came across and, and from that time... There really were earls, and then there was the king. Earls, you know, had sections of the country they looked after for the king. And it was then dukes were introduced as a sort of additional layer of aristocracy that had royal links. Yes, so they were, they were, they were distinct lines of that royal family. But it didn't mean loyalty, of course. We'll go on to, to William the Conqueror, of course. But you look at Duke Robert of Normandy, his, his eldest son, and he actually wounded his father in battle. I mean, slashed him across the arm and would have killed him had William not been saved by one of the earls who pulled him from his saddle and got him out of danger. And, and apart from the dukes and the barons, you then got pretenders. If a king had not fully established himself, if he had usurped the previous king, for example, Henry IV with Richard II and then starving Richard II to death in Pontefract Castle, you, you get all these rivals coming in saying, we are actually more legitimate, we have a greater claim to the throne. So you get someone like Perkin Warbeck, who was just a, a Flemish merchant, young Flemish merchant, age 17, who lands in Cork in Ireland. And he's taught English over there. 
And he's put forward as one of the princes who had survived in the tower, who'd survived the murder in the tower. He came forward in the 1490s to challenge Henry VII. He, he made several forays to England. He landed in Cornwall, got an army of 6,000, was defeated, and was put in the Tower of London. And Henry VII, having initially just rather dismissed him, in the end had him hanged because, of course, having anyone around who might pose a rival, particularly when you're Henry VII, Henry Tudor, and you're, you're slightly worried about your claim to the throne, yeah. uh, th- then, of course, you're going to, to rely both on battle and murder to, to sustain your position. All challenges uh, have to be met. Uh, and then, of course, marry the, 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 the widow or the betrothed of your, of your deceased brother and put the two, two houses of York and Lancaster together. Yeah. And when you add in religion to this whole mix... Uh, it can become uh, an even more extraordinary mess of who ends up being the king. It adds a dimension, and uh, once more, with with the Hanoverians, you get to the Hanoverians, and you have to remember that George I was selected, even though he was 50th or more in line to the throne, because he was the first Protestant. All the others, all the previous 50, were Catholic, so they had no right to have a claim to the British throne. So George I came in. And oddly enough, one of the reasons we have parliamentary democracy today is not because of the uh, Enlightenment and and all of this uh, and and the changes that William and Mary brought in. It's, It's simply because George I couldn't speak English. And so he couldn't sit in on the cabinet sessions, on on the meetings of his ministers. He got bored and left them to get on with it. And that's really how this precedent was created, where the British head of state, the monarch, did not meddle on an everyday basis in parliamentary affairs, did not sit in on cabinet meetings. It all started with George I. And we think that this is really the age of enlightenment and so on, but George I wasn't exactly uh, a nice, gentle character. No, he he imprisoned his wife, Sophia, in in a castle in Germany for 30 years because because of an affair she had. So she was never allowed out of that castle. And, And his son, George II, never saw his mother again as a result. So this was this sort of movement to that, that period, movement from that, 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 that time into the sort of more modern uh, era. But, but there were still sort of medieval aspects to the behaviour of, of, of those kings. And still that idea of kings being at the head of their army and going into battle at Shrewsbury or Worcester, Marston Moor and so on. Well, and that, that continued to, to, to the 18th century. You take George II at the Battle of Dettingen in 1743 in June. Uh, he was the last monarch, as, as many people know, to actually lead a cavalry charge, to actually lead his troops in battle. And it was most extraordinary. And again, it doesn't always work out. I mean, it's always... It's not always a good idea to have your monarch there. But he rode up and down in front of his troops 
uh, and was shouting, now, boys, now, for the honour of England, in a German voice. Now, boys, now, for the honour of England. <laughs> Lucky you've got German blood. You can do that so well. <laughs> I'm quite convincing. And, and the troops started cheering, and his horse bolted. And so he raced off towards the French guns. No one was following him. He was just alone on his horse. Thank and God. luckily, a young ensign galloped after him. And the French were taking pot shots at him by this stage. And the ensign managed to grab his reins and lead him off and uh, made sure he was safe. But he actually led his men on foot after that during the battle. Reminds but, me of, uh, well, partly William the Conqueror, that moment in the battle where they were losing the, the Normans. And he had to take off his helmet and run up, in front, up and down in front of his troops and say, no, no, I'm not dead, I'm here. And, you know, that spurred the men to stand fast. And also that moment when General Scarlet at the, um, at the charge of the Heavy Brigade in uh, at the Battle of Balaclava, when he basically, being a good hunting man, he just took off expecting the Heavy Brigade to follow him. So they had to charge <laughs> after him. Otherwise, he'd take on the entire Russian army on his own. But I think the symbolism and martial prowess was so key, C certainly up into the 18th century. You, you had to be there. You had to be on the battlefield. So it's no accident that someone like Charles II was, was unseated from his horse twice during the Battle of Worcester. So... You know, it, that always happened. If you take someone like Oliver Cromwell, he came up through the army anyway, so he was wounded uh, uh, quite lightly, but he was wounded at, at the Battle of Marston Moor. But well, he was originally really a yeoman farmer. He, he, he was, he was, but he, he certainly made his name yeah. as, as a commander and as mm. a very brave commander on the battlefield. So, so the need for the king to be there was important. By the time you get to the Hanoverians, it's, it's, it's sort of fading out. Uh, George II, the, 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 the man who saved him, the ensign who saved him, incidentally, ended up as head of the British army. And so what you're, one, one of the things you're alluding to is that the royals still continued in war, but they weren't leading. So someone like William IV was in a battle in 1813, for instance, where he got musket balls through his sleeve, but he wasn't in charge. Well, he wasn't actually in the battle. He was observing right. the battle. But he had been, he was, a, of course, he, he was Sailor the Bill. Sailor King, yeah, mm. Sailor Bill. And he had been in the American War of Independence, or what they, I think they now call the American Revolutionary War. So he, he had seen combat yeah. in, in the same way that George VI, uh, the, the Queen's father, Queen Elizabeth's father, had, had been at the Battle of Jutland and was mentioned in dispatches. So, so That's very the, cheeky. That was my fact. Uh, I'm terribly sorry. To... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. It was it's, just it's basically, he was there, but he was the lowest of the low. Exactly. So it was worth... And, and so, so, you know, just being there, you know, having some sort of military background, but certainly George II was, was the high point. George III wanted to lead his troops in battle, but, you know, he... he was was sort of going off the deep end mentally. The powers that be realised. Exactly, yeah. and he wasn't in a fit state. George the Fourth believed he had been at the Battle of Waterloo <laughs> in 1815. He told that story so often. He actually believed it, but but when you've got a 58 inch waist, I don't think you're in a fit state to lead any kind of troops at all. So yeah. so it never sort of quite worked out. So so as we mentioned at the beginning, it was really marriage murder and martial prowess through, through for about 700 years 
of English history and British history. It, it was important to to actually establish yourself on the battlefield, as it was in in many other areas overseas as well, with other monarchs overseas. You know, they were the ones who led the troops, who led the campaigns. Okay. Well, before we end this section, can we just have a quick moment on the re-employment of uh, royals? I thought it would be worth putting in re-employment of royals, just to show that sometimes their re-employment off the battlefield is probably more valuable than their employment on the battlefields because uh, their leadership qualities are not great. So if you get someone like Marcus Licinius Crassus in 53 BC when he was dealing with the Parthians of of what is modern-day Iran, uh, he went to negotiate after losing a battle, and apparently he was beheaded or uh, perhaps killed with molten gold poured into his mouth, and his gold-embossed head was used as a theatre prop. So <laughs> that was that was one leader who ended up re-employed. There was uh, a well, nice Game of Thrones uh, reference there you didn't know you made as well, Jamie. When yes. the Queen of Dragons' brother has gold poured down his uh, poured over his head molten gold poured his head by the Dothraki. It's a very satisfying scene. But also, actually, more to the uh, current times, Crassus's great fortune, he's the richest man, wasn't he, in Rome, or Roman history even, was through property. And who's in charge of the Russian military today? Property developers. Well, property... Shoigu is a property yeah, yes. man. He, he is a property developer. Well, that's the thing. It's amazing. But but that's what gives you the money. That you gives you the advancement. think you'll end up with... Uh, Golden crown. Maybe. He might be used as a theatre prop. If you take someone like Crassus, he had already proved himself in the war against Spartacus, against the slave revolt, and had uh, crucified 6,000 of them. Yeah, but it, he'd proved himself to be a thug, not to be a great general. It, precisely, and that's a bit like Prigozhin, but, but thugs have their uses. You go from the theatre prop there in 53 BC, and you, you move forward to 811 AD, and you find someone like Emperor Nicephorus I of Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire. And he took an army uh, to, to Bulgaria to defeat Con Crum, the emperor of Bulgaria. And he was ambushed. Uh, his head was cut off and he, his head was lined with silver. He ended up as a drinking vessel. So not unlike what happened to some of the Japanese uh, dead um, during the Pacific War, and their heads were cut off, and some of the skulls were used for as candle holders and such things. So, uh, trophies are part of the course, really. But what what also is quite uh, interesting about that story is the to and fro of battle in that particular encounter, because it did go one way and the other several times, and it was only in the final encounter that uh, Crum defeated him, and he was killed and had his head turned into a cup. But it, but it sort of demonstrates the, the luck of war. It can go horribly wrong. Uh, uh, earlier than that, in 260 AD, you got Emperor Valerian. I mean, this was the absolute low point of the Roman Empire. It was the first time a Roman emperor had actually been captured in a battle. And he had been besieged at Edessa. A lot of his uh, legionaries had died from plague. He was captured by the Persians, and he ended up 
being used by the Persian Sultan as a mounting block for his horse. And that went on for several years until the Sultan got bored of him and ended up having him flayed alive, his skin dyed purple, I think it was, and stuffed with straw and used as a party decoration for his palace. So all these things can happen to, to, to rulers, to leaders, where it goes terribly wrong. Is that where the expression straw man comes from? You know, they use it in debates today. You're, you're, you're using a straw man debate. Probably not. I mean, that, 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 that's, that's probably from things like scarecrows, I suspect, Very good. rather than valerian. Right, Jamie, let's dial the clock back 2,000-plus years. And in the case of our first king or pharaoh, Ramses II... 1274, Kadesh. I, I've, BC. BC, of course. I, I've mentioned it in my Forgotten Battles, uh, Bloody Bites, because it was a phenomenal battle. But it, it, it's worth putting in simply because it shows a pharaoh, a leader, at the height of his power and using it as propaganda. It wasn't exactly the most decisive battle, simply because both sides claim victory, both the Hittites and the Egyptians. But if you go to Egypt, there there are statues, columns, friezes, you name it. Ozymandias. Uh, yes, dedicated to Ramses II and his great victories. And Kadesh was a key victory. It was the greatest chariot battle in history. So it, it's worth mentioning for that. And the fact that it produced uh, the world's first known peace treaty and and there's a copy of that peace treaty at the united nations to this day oh. so it, it it just shows there was there was the personification of god on earth if you like a ruler a military ruler and a god or a demigod you know at, at his height so uh, ramesses the second and kadesh are, are worth mentioning a real king okay a real and, king and then um the persians tried to invade greece 480 BC. And you got Thermopylae. So uh, that was Leonidas uh, leading his men, leading his Spartans. The Spartans, they, they, they always had two kings. One king was always trying to outmatch the other. You had to prove yourself. It wasn't a bad way of was doing it. Was that deliberate? It, it, it was yeah, deliberate yeah. And, and it worked. And yeah. so it's no wonder that the Spartans yeah. had that fearsome reputation. Yeah. And and this was a this was a victory because it was a successful holding operation. It was a holding operation, but also a massacre of the Spartans and the poor old helots who had to fight with them. And, and even <laughs> I know what you're about to say. And a Gets few me. and a few hundred uh, thespians as well were at the battle. I know what we could do with them today. They could be they could be reemployed. A small gap in northern Greece. Exactly. But if, if the survival of your kingdom relied on a good military, then plainly the ruler of that kingdom had to show martial prowess, had to show leadership, had to inspire his men, and had to come up with the right strategy. And ultimately be prepared to die, rather like going down with the ship. Exactly. So, so by the time you get to, to, to the Roman Empire and you had people like Julius Caesar, you know, they were military men. I mean, they weren't just from, from, from wealthy or prestigious families in Rome, senatorial families. They, they, they 
often had to show that they were good enough to lead the legions and have the uh, backing of those legions. I mean, uh, Caesar crossing the Rubicon is a fine example of that. But, uh, but also with Caesar, I mean, there'd been men prior to Caesar in the Republic who'd been probably as accomplished generals as him, Marius and so on. But they were sort of common men. They'd come up through the ranks to some extent, whereas Caesar had the combination of a highly aristocratic, if rather impoverished, background combined with his own great ability as a military leader. And the combination of the two effectively led to the destruction of the Republic. Exactly. And, and, and before that, you've got leaders like Scipio Africanus. So, so, you know, these people who defeated Hannibal. So, you know, this idea of, of merit and, and prowess on the battlefield was absolutely key. And, and Scipio was a, was, a, was a, you know, he was a true son of the Roman soil. I mean, he was a very good commander. Cons- he was consul, therefore he gets to take the legions into battle against Hannibal. Nobody could defeat Hannibal. He roamed around the Italian peninsula for something like 16 years and their Romans just sat in their in their city, you know, in the, behind their walls while he ravaged the countryside and they were all terrified of him and it was only Scipio who ultimately defeated him on his home turf at the Battle of Zama in 202 BC uh, by deploying his 6,000 cavalry and defeating Hannibal's thirty to 40,000 men and 80 elephants. But that's why it's so shocking to, 400 years later, have a Roman emperor who, who ends up as a mounting block for a Persian leader. This is, this is what's so terrible. But in the meantime, you did have extremely good uh, military men in, in emperors such as Trajan and Hadrian. Well, well, so in a way, they were royals. They were like a king. Um, there was a certain amount of meritocracy in it that it wasn't always just passed to the son. I mean, Hadrian was Spanish, I think, wasn't he? Well, they, 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 I think they had Umbrian heritage, and 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 they were related, both Trajan yes. and Hadrian. Uh, Hadrian ch- changed everything by having a beard. <laughs> he he was absolutely a soldier, soldier. Yeah. And and that was extremely important. He was very successful. And both Trajan and Hadrian were very good at consolidating and expanding uh, the Roman Empire. So, so that was before the decline, before things went terribly wrong. All right, before we start talking about uh, the familiar kings, starting with the Willy Willy, Harry Steve, Harry Dick, John Harry III, and all of that. Uh, let's have a little discussion about the pre-medieval period, uh, starting with Alfred the Great. Well, we all know about Alfred the Great and Anglo-Saxons. He wasn't the King of England, so we're going to sort of skate past him slightly. But he certainly put up a fight, and there were plenty of battles. And this was the period, you can see where Game of Thrones comes from. I mean, this was the period of Norse invaders. This was the period of Danish kings. This was the period of Anglo-Saxons and the Anglo-Saxon earls and the rivalries. And, and, and this all fed into what happened later on. But Alfred stands as, as one of these people who, who stood against the Vikings during that period. And it was, of course, the period of Danegeld as well that, that 
tribute was paid to the invaders. Those Viking invaders, those Danish kings later on, always saw England as a place where the law could be applied and where taxes could be raised. This was their... Jewel in the crown, really. This was the jewel in the crown. This, mm. this was completely where they could be uh, confident of, of getting wealth, of getting funds for, for other expeditions. But, but Canute was really the first true king of England. Is Alfred really the... He was almost like the... He started... He fired the starting pistol he, he in, did, he, in the he, mythology. He, he did, and, and the start of those Anglo-Saxon kings. And, and you then had kings such as Ethelred or Ethelred the Unready uh, because he, he wasn't always present for the battles. And he spent a lot of his time in exile in France because Canute came over. Well, first of all, Swain Forkbeard came over, who was the father of Canute. And and this was the period of the Danish kings. Uh, Swain wasn't actually crowned. He only ruled for about five weeks before he died. And then Canute came in. And Canute was a very competent leader, a very competent king, but a very competent military commander as well. And and that was critical. You know, we've talked about it in terms of, of foreign leaders and Caesars and that sort of thing. But it was extremely important in a period of of Norse invasion, of, of Danish kings and of Anglo-Saxons and the jockeying for position. Although um, Edmund Ironside, his opponent, his Anglo-Saxon opponent, uh, was also considered to be a very effective leader and one of the measures of that was the ability to raise an army. He, he constantly raised armies to put off fights and he beat Canute in battles such as the Battle of London Bridge. Uh, there was the siege of... Uh, of London, uh, Canute's forces had come forward. Y- yet another siege brought about by Canute, who had invaded before and taken himself off and then come back again. And uh, th- you had Norwegian princes such as Olaf coming in on the side of Edmund Ironside, and and Canute surrounded London. And what happened? The 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 Norwegians, the Vikings, the Norsemen pulled London Bridge down, pulled the pontoon supports away with their ships. Um, That's probably where you get the nursery rhyme, London Bridge is falling down. But it certainly fell down on that occasion with Danish troops and their mercenary allies on the bridge at the time. So there were men drowned, there were high casualties. But uh, that was 1014. Two years later, you get the Battle of Assenden or Ashingdon, as it's known in Essex, is believed to have been in, in southeast Essex. And, and that was the moment where Edmund Ironside was comprehensively beaten by King Canute on the battlefield. And that's where the dominance of, of Canute began. And you get some rather fine poetry coming out of the conclusion of that particular event from Canute's court scalds. At Ashingdon you worked well in the shield wall, warrior king. Brown was the flesh of bodies served to the bloodbird. In the slaughter you won, sir, with your sword, enough of a name there, north of the Danes' woods. 
But Ashington was a great battle. But it wasn't the end, because Edmund Ironside then had a duel, apparently, with Canute, and they fought with spears, they fought with swords. Uh, and some chroniclers say that Edmund Ironside was dominant in that duel. But, but an agreement was reached, and Edmund Ironside really took north of the Thames and, and Canute took south of the Thames. And they had an agreement that whichever one survived the longest would end up inheriting the other's realm. And what happened a few months later? Well, Edmund Ironside died uh, mysteriously. And some chroniclers say that he was murdered um, whilst on the privy. So he was having a shit, basically. And some say he was killed with a crossbow. Others say that the assassin was hiding underneath him and basically shoved a sword upwards. So, Jamie, this is the level of detail that you have that always impresses me. Thank you, Tom. Uh, I just want to know why he wasn't called Edmund Arnbutt as a result. <laughs> Clearly, his Arnbutt wasn't Arnbutt. <laughs> uh, Edmund Fudgebutt. <laughs> Stop it. But Canute... <laughs> God almighty... <laughs> Sorry. Okay. Onwards. Okay. 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 Hang on. Anyway, Canute takes over, and he becomes the first true king of England, and is known for being quite a wise king for bringing in rules, regulations, for, ta for obviously taxation as usual. But he ruled for about twenty years, and and that was really the high point of the Danish. Kings. You then, of course, ended up with a son of Ethelred the Unready, the, the Anglo-Saxons, um, taking over again. And, and Canute, of course, came from that lineage of Christian uh, Danish kings who, who ruled Norway as well. They, so, so they had England, Norway and Denmark. And so you had Swain Forkbeard before Canute. Uh, you had Harold Bluetooth. We all know the word Bluetooth uh, as, as a result. But that, that is really the lineage of Canute. But against him, you, you had those, those fiery Anglo-Saxons. So in comes um, St. Edward the Confessor. And he once again restored the Anglo-Saxon rule to England. Everyone calls him St. Edward the Confessor. He happens to be the patron saint of our royal family and the patron saint of failed marriages, strangely enough. Hmm. So is there a connection, I ask? But he built uh, Westminster Abbey and he was the first ruler, the first king to be buried at Westminster Abbey. He was the first king to be buried there. William the Conqueror, 1066, was the first king to be crowned there so so that's the connection you then got the norman invasion but everyone was related to everyone else this is the thing you know william wasn't a, he, he may have been a dark horse but he was certainly related to all that crowd that's even before you get um, edward the confessor perhaps or maybe not uh, promising the throne to him Talking earlier about uh, a king having to take power, hold power, and then pass it on, he might have been a saint, but he was pretty terrible at securing the, the succession. He left it rather open, and that's why we ended up with um, 
poor old Harold running up and down the country having to fight everyone off to to make his claim and ultimately dying at the Battle of Hastings. And also Edward the Confessor is believed to have poisoned rivals as well. So everyone was at it, basically. Do you think it was confession and then drink this? <laughs> Why not? I mean, it, it, it happened all the time. There is much to consider on Royals in War, so we're going to deliver it to you in two parts. Our next episode will cover 1066 and all that, a run from the Anglo-Norman period to the present day. Please tune in and download. So it goes, for now. Our thanks to Rory Highfield for his excellent research. You've been listening to part one of Royals in War on Bloody Violent History with me, Tom Ashton, and him, James Jackson. Contact us at talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. Thank you, and good luck.